Women will be saved in childbearing, 1 Timothy 2.15. What did he mean? He meant that the saving role, virtue, task, goal of women is to raise godly children. While on the one hand, woman might bear a stigma for having led in the fall in the Garden of Eden, she reverses that stigma by leading in the producing of a godly generation through spiritual influence to her children. Welcome to Grace to You with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. It's been said that godly mothers write on the hearts of their children what the world's rough hand cannot erase. And that is certainly true of a particular mother in the Bible. That woman is Hannah. John MacArthur takes you to her life story today on Grace to You. His timely message will show you how the Bible honors moms and motherhood. So stay with us for John's lesson titled, Hannah, a Godly Mother. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and here's John. If you go back in our history, you can read some very interesting tributes written to mother. And if you happen to pick up some of the things that were written around Mother's Day at various times, you get an insight into how people felt about motherhood in those days. I came across an interesting one by a man named W.L. Caldwell, written in 1928. Listen to what he said about mother. Well, may we pause to pay honor to her who, after Jesus Christ, is God's best gift to men, mother. It was she who shared her life with us when as yet our members were unformed. Into the valley of the shadow of death she walked that we might have the light of life. In her arms was the garner of our food and the soft couch for our repose. There we nestled in the hour of pain. There was the playground of our infant glee. Those same arms later became our refuge and stronghold. It was she who taught our baby feet to go and lifted us up over the rough places. Her blessed hands plied the needle by day and by night to make our clothes. She put the book under our arm and started us off for school. But best of all, she taught our baby lips to lisp the name of Jesus and told us first the wondrous story of a Savior's love. And then he went on to say, The pride of America is its mothers. There are wicked mothers like Jezebel of old. There are unnatural mothers who sell their children into sin. There are sin-cursed, rum-soaked, and abandoned mothers to whom their motherhood is the exposure of their shame. I am glad to believe, however, that there are comparatively few in this class." End quote. Few, few unfaithful mothers, few sin-stained mothers, few shameful mothers, maybe few in 1928, but not so few today. What is the state of motherhood in America? Are mothers still the pride? of this land. Caldwell also said that no nation is greater than its mothers, for they are the makers of men. He's right, you know. He's right. They are the makers of men. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, women will be saved in childbearing, 1 Timothy 2.15. What did he mean? He meant that the saving role, virtue, task, goal of women is to raise godly children. 
While on the one hand, woman might bear a stigma for having led in the fall in the Garden of Eden, she reverses that stigma by leading in the producing of a godly generation through spiritual influence to her children. But it all seems so out of date and so irrelevant to women who have decided that the real role of a woman is a career. Motherhood in our day has been, frankly, devastated. It is mocked. Marriage is desecrated. Parental responsibility is shirked. Children are massacred by abortion. Mothers exercise selfishness in their work and in their play to fulfill their own satisfaction with small regard for their children, whom they largely ignore. But God's standard hasn't changed, and it is fitting that we take another look at what God intends motherhood to be. The highest calling a woman will ever know the godly women, Paul said to Titus, are to teach the younger women to be lovers of their husbands, lovers of their children, chaste, pure, keepers in the home. A widow to be put on the list, according to 1 Timothy 5.10, was one who raised children, who brought up a godly generation. That's been God's standard all along. This is the design for women. It all started with Sarah, who was a gift from God to Abram. Sarah, a model of faith. Sarah, a model of obedience. Sarah, who, given a child late in life, nonetheless demonstrated the faith and the sanctity of life that makes marriage and motherhood what it ought to be. There was the example of Rachel, whose last words before her life passed from her body were at the giving of birth to one of her children, whom she named Ben-Onai, a child of grief. There was Jochebed, the mother of Moses, and Miriam, who fought for the life of that goodly child who was fair to God. Deborah, called by God, a mother in Israel. Ruth, the gentle, sweet spirit who loved and sacrificed and was blessed to be the mother of Obed, who bore Jesse, who bore David, of whose seed the Messiah came. And there was Elizabeth, that sweet gracious mother of the greatest prophet who ever lived, John the Baptist. Of course, there was Mary, the mother of our Lord. But when the Bible details the honor due to a mother, no more detail is given to anyone beyond Hannah. We meet her in 1 Samuel 1. Hannah. Her name speaks of her beauty. It means grace, and indeed she is the emblem of the grace of womanhood. She became a mother by faith. She first appears, as 1 Samuel opens, as a childless woman. Then she becomes a mother, the mother of one of the greatest men who ever walked the earth, Samuel. And as you see the account of the birth of Samuel, you note the profile of a godly mother. As the book opens, it is the period of the judges. There is no king in Israel as yet. It is a time of turmoil. It is a time of confusion. It is a time when Israel is vulnerable to the Philistines. It is a time when they are debauched morally. It is a time when their religion has grown cold. And it is a time for a great man to rise and take the leadership of the nation. A period of religious degeneracy, of political distress. With the death of Samson, the country was divided and leaderless. The Philistines were hanging on the edge. The priesthood was corrupt. Moral scandals were rampant among the family of the priests. The nation was weak. 
the nation was impotent, and the worst of all, chapter 3, verse 1 says, word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. God even had nothing to say. The nation needed a great leader, a great man, and God needed a great woman to shape that great man. And Samuel, one of the greatest men who ever walked the earth, was not only the product of the work of God, but the product of a godly mother. And she gave to her nation and the world the greatest legacy a woman can ever give, a godly child. Verse 1 starts, Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zephim, from the hill country of Ephraim, that is around Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. He was married to two women, Penina and Hannah. Hannah, by the way, meaning grace, was a common Eastern name. As we are introduced to this story, I want us to note three things that profile a godly mother. She had a right husband relationship, she had a right heavenly relationship, and she had a right home relationship. Those three things stand out and profile her for us. First of all, let's consider her right husband relationship. And may I say that this is at the very outset essential for you to understand. The most important relationship in a family in raising godly children is not the relationship between the parents and the children, it's the relationship between the mother and the father. What you communicate to your children by your relationship dominates their thinking. They are learning about human relationships from the two of you. They are learning about virtue. They are learning about sin. They are learning about love. They are learning about forgiveness. They are learning about sympathy. They are learning about understanding. They are learning about compassion. They are learning about virtue. They are learning about honesty and integrity. They are watching. And far more important than your relationship to your child in the long run is the relationship you have to your spouse that's projected to your child. And so at the very outset, the Word of God is clear to tell us the relationship between Hannah and Elkanah. Now, first of all, let me say that it wasn't a perfect relationship. So ladies, you want to start out by realizing you're not married to a perfect man. That's a given. I want you to understand what the Scripture says. Hannah was married to a polygamist. Now, I don't know how that would sit with you as a woman, but I can guess. And I can also tell you that it didn't sit any better with Hannah than it does with you. To have a rival in the house, to have another wife in the house, and worst of all, she is producing boys and girls, and Hannah has none, and so she is the unfruitful, unproductive wife who cannot give to her husband that which her heart most longs to give. He wasn't a perfect man. The very fact that he was a polygamist indicates his imperfection. But understand this. This is a primitive time. 
And polygamy was a part of human culture, never God's design, never. God always designed one man, one woman, leaving their parents, joining together for life and becoming one flesh from Genesis on. But human society was rife with polygamy. And when the truth of God came into human society, it was so pervasive, polygamy, that it took time to root it out. Much like a missionary going today to a foreign field, giving the gospel to a civilization of people and finding that those people turn to Christ but are embroiled in all kinds of polygamous marriage relationships that take several generations to untangle. So it was in the ancient world. And so Elkanah created for Hannah a very difficult situation. We don't know the details, but it may well have been that he went on to marry Penina because of Hannah's barrenness, and in order to produce a generation who could then possess his inheritance. And so that would even make the pain deeper because Penina came to do in that union what Hannah could not do. Not a perfect relationship, but nonetheless a good one, a right one. Let me show you why. First of all, they shared worship. Now this man, Elkanah, verse 3 says, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. doesn't mean he went once a year. It meant that every year he went. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, explains the prescription three times a year. Yes, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booth. Booths. The man had to go to the place of worship. In this particular time in 1 Samuel, the uh, place of worship, worship was at Shiloh because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was located before it was transferred to Jerusalem. So at least those three times a year, all males had to go and do that. He did that. He was a worshiping man. I encourage you, as I always have, young ladies, when you get married, marry one who loves the Lord Jesus Christ because you need that spiritual headship. Hannah had that. And in spite of the difficulty of that polygamous relationship, she had a godly husband who was a spiritual leader. In contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, who, though they were priests and sons of the high priest, were as fleshy and vile and debauched as men could be. And here is the first aspect, then, of a right relationship between a husband and a wife. They worship together. They worship together. Basic basic. Your worship is vital in projecting godliness to your children. That's why way back in the Pentateuch, the first set of books written, when God was establishing the laws for His people in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, He said, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you're entering to possess it, the land of Canaan, and shall clear away many nations before you, and He names the nations. When the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You'll make no covenant with them, show no favor to them. Then listen to this, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Stay away from mixed marriages. Next to the last chapter of Joshua in verse 11, repeating the same injunction, 
Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. And if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. If you go back and intermarry, you're going to lose everything. Don't do that. That same injunction is repeated at a later time in Israel's history when they came out of captivity to rebuild, namely Ezra 9, verses 10 to 15. You come into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 7, marry only in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what concord has Christ with Satan? What fellowship has light and darkness? And how can parents, Ephesians 6, 4, raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if one of them is an unbeliever? Now, bless God by His grace, He can overrule the fact that you have an unbelieving husband. It may well be that when you married, you weren't a Christian either, and you've been drawn to Christ and your husband has not. It may well have been that you married an unbeliever as a Christian, knowing you were doing it, and God in His grace can overrule all those circumstances. But nonetheless, his purpose is that the godly marry the godly for the sake of the next generation. Starting out then, they had a shared worship. So vital. How you worship communicates volumes of information to your children. Are you faithful? Are you faithful to come and meet with God's redeemed people week in and week out? Are you faithful to make the Word of God the priority in your life? Are you faithful that prayer should have a high place in your experience spiritually? Are you faithful to live what you affirm that you believe? In other words, the attitude of your spiritual devotion is communicating a Christianity to your children that they will have a hard time overcoming if it, in fact, is less than it ought to be. Secondly, they not only had a right relationship in their marriage because of worshiping together, but secondly, they shared love. Notice verse 4. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, one of those times when he took the trip to Shiloh, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Stop at that point. He didn't love Penina. That's the implication. Penina was there to produce the children that Hannah couldn't have. Penina was there to create a future for his family, his inheritance. But Hannah was the one he loved, and he made no attempt to hide that. And when they went to offer their sacrifices, I don't know if you know how that worked, but they would go to offer peace offerings, and they would offer the offering and the altar there. The priest would take a small part. The most of it would come back to the family, and they'd have a feast. And when passing out the feast... He would give a double portion to Hannah because she was the one he loved. This was a gesture in the East to an honored guest. She was the one who had his heart. And it was not just the love of emotion. It was the love of kindness and the love of thoughtfulness and the love of sacrifice, the love of honor. He loved her. And she was secure in his love because he took the time to demonstrate his love to her in very public ways such as he had done at this feast in front of everyone. They shared love, and thus she was secure in that love. And she needed that, believe me, when he had another wife. Now, you wouldn't like that one bit, and neither did she. And she needed that security of love. 
Isn't it interesting how God in His providence balanced things? Hannah had the love of Elkanah. Penina, who did not have his love, had the children that God allowed her to bear to receive their love. God was gracious to all of them. They shared love. Vital in being a godly mother is sharing the love of your husband so that there is a security there, there is a warmth there, a trust there, a quietness there. There is the absence of anxiety and frustration so that the woman can give herself to the children and not always feel that she's got to be a beauty queen to win the affection of her husband. Once the husband, with his love, wraps that woman up and secures her, then she can give herself away to her children and not have to feel that she must always fight the uphill battle to attract her husband. Thirdly, they shared another thing. They shared feelings, shared worship. Their relationship to God was a common one. They shared love, and they shared feelings. Look at verse 6. Her rival, however, that's Penina, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It said that also at the end of verse 5. Twice it says the Lord had closed her womb. What it's trying to say is this isn't Hannah's problem. The Lord did this. The Lord closed her womb. And this Penina would harass her, you know, that kind of thing. Too bad you can't have any children, Hannah. Just sticking the knife in. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and wouldn't eat. Here she goes to the big feast. Elkanah's sympathetically, lovingly giving her a double portion. She won't eat anything because on the other side of the table, Penina's really rubbing it in that she has no children. The response, I would not want to be in Elkanah's position, trying to pull these two women together. But Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? They shared feelings. Boy, he read her feelings, and he didn't pontificate. He asked the question, Why are you doing this, Hannah? Haven't I been better than ten sons to you? Such a sympathetic heart. Some of you women are writing this down because you want to remind your husband about that. I understand that. <laughs> we can be very insensitive, very insensitive. And we can be very quick to give immediate answers to everything without hearing the heart. Not Elkanah. Bless him. He knew the conflict, and he knew the conflict was intensified from Penina's side, and he knew that it was deep and painful, and it was a hard, hard place for her to be. And so he was tender and sympathetic and thoughtful, and he felt her feelings in his own heart. Why is this a godly woman? I'll tell you, the soil is right to produce a godly mother. She has a right husband relationship. They share worship, the deepest dimension of human life. They share love, maybe the next deepest dimension of human life. They share feelings, maybe the next deepest dimension of human life. They have a deep relationship. They move together. 
in the presence of God, with one another, and over the issues of life that involve other people. That's John MacArthur here on Grace to You. He's examining the life of a woman named Hannah, someone who understood and embraced God's design for her life. John titled today's message, Hannah, a Godly Mother. Along with teaching each day on the radio, John also serves as chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary in Southern California. Now, there's a lot more practical truth to glean from the life of Hannah, and we'll get back to that tomorrow. But right now, John, let me have you read the letter that's in front of you. It's a remarkable story of God's providence and the power of biblical truth to bless a home. I think this will encourage a lot of wives and moms who are listening right now. Share it with us. Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, This is from Kathy I grew up in a Christian home because I was always a leader in my church and I excelled in school. There were well-meaning adults who told me not to waste the good mind God had given me. I really wanted to please God, so by age 24, I had a husband, a master's degree, and my own business. Three years later, I happened to find myself in my car at an unusually early time. You just happened to be on the radio preaching on God's pattern for wives— from your series called The Fulfilled Family. You read this from Proverbs 31. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Then you said this to the men listening, Find a woman, first of all, that you can trust. Trust her with everything, your children, your money, your possessions, your relationships. She won't go around undermining those things. Those words broke my heart. I realized in an instant that no matter how dedicated or smart I was, I could not give 100% to my business, to my husband, to my two small kids, and to our home. I had to make a decision. I chose my family. It was hard at times, emotionally, mentally, physically, financially, and spiritually. But God is good. He blessed us with two more children— and I have spent the last 20 years homeschooling our kids, and I have never regretted my decision to stay home. Thank you for faithfully preaching God's Word and for validating the role of a wife and mother. God is good always. Kathy. Kathy, thank you. What a privilege to uh, see what the Word of God did in your life and the life of your family and to know that God used you in the way that He did. So thankful am I that God rescued you from sort of wasting your life in a corporate environment. God's Word confronts, it engages, it redirects, it did for Kathy. And if you respond to His Word, you'll find the path of life and the path of peace and the path of joy. And we're here at Grace Geo working in unison with station operators and our supporters to keep these messages from the Word of God coming to your home and to your car and to wherever you are. So thank you for standing with grace to you for all the Cathy's in the world and many more like her. Thanks, John. Well, friend, in these difficult days, we have great opportunities to minister to people who need encouragement and hope from God's Word. If you're led and able to partner with us in this work, contact us today. You can mail a tax-deductible donation to Grace to You, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. Or call us, 800-55-GRACE, 
or go to our website, gty.org. Again, we believe these are strategic days for making biblical truth available on radio, on the internet, through the free books or free CDs that we mail out every month. Many opportunities to strengthen God's people with truth and bring the gospel to unbelievers who've been shaken by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're praying that God would use his truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to draw many to Christ. Supporting your local church comes first, as always, but if you're able to support Grace to You financially, just know that it will translate into lives reached with biblical truth. Our website, again, gty.org, or call us at 800-55-GRACE, And special thanks if you're a Grace partner. Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson, inviting you back for our next broadcast. John's going to look at how to make your home a place of peace and joy. Be here, won't you, for another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You. Grace to You.